let's crack open a beer and share some thoughts. Welcome to this opinion special where we're looking back over 20, yes, that's 20 years of fine owls, Martin, aren't we? Yes, I, I, I was only in my early 30s when fine owls kicked off, Steve. Uh, but we're not alone. Uh, we do have a special guest and it's uh, Jamie Delap from Fine Owls. Welcome to the show. Hey, welcome, guys. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us on. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for joining uh, joining us, Jamie. It is, a, it is a pleasure to have you with us. Now, uh, just for our listeners, what, what is your role at Fine Owls? Oh, Lord. Um, yeah, so I suppose I, suppose I'm, I kind of land up doing everything that no one else does. But yeah, no, basically, uh, my, my parents started the brewery back um, 20 years ago. And when dad died, um, which is now just over, what, 12 years ago, 12 and a bit years ago, um, you know, someone someone needed to either me or my brother needed to get involved and work out where what we we're going to do and how we're going to sort it out and um and you know at that stage mum had been involved but it was very much helping her to sort of work out where we where we took the brewery to next so I kind of got my sleeves um rolled up and stuck in and um you know so I've really spent the last 12 and a half years in beer so um yeah I don't know what you want to call me managing director owner a, a bit of a mixture, whatever, whatever I can do. No, that's that's good. And uh, 12 and a half years soaked in beer doesn't sound t- so bad for me outside. To be honest. No, I'd, I'd say, <laughs> I would say it was pretty, pretty damn good. I think that was probably one of the deciding factors. I think my, my last business was um, a much less enjoyable part of the in, part of industry, shall we say. It was, it was good. There were lots of things I loved about it. Lots of things that were good fun. But um, but then you find yourself making beer and selling beer and you're like, OK, this could be good. Actually, we could do something here. This, this is something that we could actually have some fun with and really take take somewhere and do something with. Okay, well, before we get too much into the family history and the, and the business side of it, we have already opened the first beer. It is sitting in front of me. It's a 500 milliliter bottle, listeners. Um, <laughs> Remember uh, those? I, I'm, I'm sort of ready to dive in, but perhaps, Jamie, you should probably tell us what we're having. Okay, so um, we're starting actually with, with the very first beer that we brewed um, back in 2001 when we started. Um, you know, and very much as I said, you know, this 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 business was started by my parents. We've we've had a farm up here for a hundred plus years. Um, but you know, but this was the the beer that we decided to jump back. I'll go back to the beer. We this was a beer we started with. So it was a um, you know, my dad's favorite beer. I remember um, when we were um, living down south before we sort of before they moved up here permanently was um, HSB from um, Gales Hampshire Special Brew, which was you know. Good, solid, classic, well-made English bitter, um, and up here in the on the west coast of Scotland, you know, you were really lucky if you found a pint of Duke's IPA or Belhaven eighty shilling. That was as good as you were going to get. Um, and frankly, they weren't great, and they often weren't served in great great condition. So, what Dad really wanted to do was to produce a beer that he really wanted to drink, and. Um, being a man who was um, never shy of, as I remember it, of a can of um, Tenant's um, Super Lager or Carlsberg Special, he certainly wasn't shy of pushing up what was, in those days, you know, 4.8% was considered a relatively strong beer. Um, so he wanted to produce a relatively strong, good, solid um, bitter. Um, and that was really where Highlander came from. And also, you know, up here in Scotland, something where at that stage, you know, 2001, it was not all about the hops. Um, 
it was about you know good solid drinkability so it was very much a malt forward beer and i think when you when you drink this you know you're going to get a lot of that sort of um the notes from the crystal malt that we use coming through that sort of malty sweetness um and this one's married up with um Saleo, which is a nice um, slovenian hop um which we think just marries in nicely and of the beers that we started with, this is the only one where the recipe has basically stayed untouched since that first brew that we've, we, we did with it. Yeah, I'm sure there will have been a, a few little trims and tweaks along the way, but the malt bill's the same, the, um, the hot bill's the same, the basic processing's the same, um, and it's all sort of built, built forward from there. I don't know about you, Steve, but if we don't get into this soon, I, I might cry. Yeah, I, I, from just from that description, my my, my mouth's watering. It's it's the sort of beer that I'm really craving at the moment as as, as well. Um, thanks for that introduction, Jamie. Cheers. Cheers, Cheers guys. Mm, you do really get like a creamy caramel, and, and initially coming through, and then that just gives way to this real subtle earthiness. And then behind that is just this bitterness that underpins the whole drink. That, and, and it's one of those that makes you want to go back in for another sip just to make sure you've tasted everything that you just tasted. <laughs> yeah, c- couldn't agree more, Steve. I think that the bitterness really does sort of back everything up that goes beforehand. Um, mm-hmm. I can definitely see the sort of HSB influence behind it. because I, I do think you, you described it very accurately. It is... Um, a really good, solid example of an English bitter. And I can definitely see where, where the inspiration comes from. This probably feels a little bit more, uh, almost fruitier. Um, and I don't know if that comes from the, the, the hops That's, you were talking about from Slovenia. Exactly. We're, we're looking, we're, I think we were very much looking for that slightly fruitier note, that slightly more interesting. And I think, you know, although, although the recipe has stayed the same, you know, I think we've probably been selecting for hops, which are giving it a slightly fruitier profile over time. Because, you know, everything's going to have its, you know, I think when you're thinking beers, I always think, you know, you're not thinking about one flavour. You've kind of got like a, begin, a beginning, a middle and an end. And and the, and the flavour of a good beer sort of has to evolve and roll in your mouth as you go. So I think the trick for any good long drinking beer, um, sort of sessionable beer, is that long, slow um, bitterness at the end. But you also want it to begin sort of, you know, this one I think begins with quite a lot of that malt up front. And then you've kind of got that sort of fruity note you go go through and then you dry out to that bitterness at the end. And I think it's important that beer has that sort of evolution in the mouth. Yeah. Talking of, of evolution, this, this is a real interesting one for me because this is first beer that fine brewed 20 years ago in, in, in 2001. And it's an amber and it stood yep. the test of time over 20 years where I think there are many breweries that would have rapidly dropped this sort of style as tastes changed in the last few years. But yet you've, you've stuck with it and this is still a beer that sits within your core range. Have you seen the demand for this reduce or, or, or is, is there still as much demand for this beer as there's always been? Oh, so certainly compared with when we started, there's way more demand for this beer than there ever was back in 2001. Just because, you know, in 2001, we were ploughing barren fields and it um, it took time. But no, I mean, this this has been um, constantly available um, ever since we started. Um, you know, this is this is a beer that's been on the stock lists 
at least intended to be on the stock list, give or take stock outs, but you know, it's, it's always been intended to be available absolutely year round since since the beginning. Um, so no, I, I would say I would say more that everything else has grown faster. Um, so, but you know, I would say we had a much more um, one of our core range beers. We did Bramling Cross, which was much more an absolute classic British bitter. Um, and actually, post pandemic, we've not bought that back as part of the core range. Um, just, I think, to be honest, because there's a lot of good, very well made British brown bitters out there. And up here in Scotland, there's not a huge market for them. So, whereas this one, which hits more into that sort of 80 shilling pint of heavy sort of style that we have up here, um, has always stood the test of time. Obviously, we're having it in a 500 milliliter bottle tonight. What's I mean, presumably it was you, you, when you did the, you know, your dad did this recipe 20 odd years ago, he was picturing drinking it presumably as a, as a cask beer. Absolutely. Yeah. When we started, it was 100% cask. Um, so, yeah, we were very much, you know, this was 2001 was the era, era of microbrews, uh, microbreweries. And the thing that was interesting up here in Scotland was that there really wasn't much real ale around. And so, you know, there certainly were. I mean, don't get me wrong. There were people, there were people up here that started well before us. Um, but nevertheless, it was not common to find good um, small, small brewery produced um, cask beer. So from, from the get-go, we were sort of conceived as a classic British cask beer brewery. That was, um, that was our essence that's where we began began from i i think this actually has the softness of a cask beer it mm. it, it, it really does and yeah. I, the, the conditioning is excellent isn't it steve yeah yeah i mean it's i'm getting lacing in in, in my glass and 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 any beer that i can get lacing from at home i'm very very happy with <laughs> um, in in terms of the conditioning yeah we 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 use a bit of torrified wheat in the um, in the recipe, which really helps with the extra protein for that head head retention. So you know, it's every beer's got to look right, it's got to look good, it's got to look true to style. So you know, so we're not going for a big Belgian beer, sort of big white foamy head, but we do want a bit of a head on it. We do want it to sort of have that bit of lacing through the glass. Yeah, mine's mine's got a nice bit of lacing coming down the way as well. Mm. While we're enjoying this. Tell us the, the, the history of, of, of Fine Owls then. You mentioned a couple of times that it, it was a family business and that, that it, it goes back in, uh, you know, a, a few years in, in, in terms of, of, of the land ownership. But explain to us how the brewery came about and how it's, it's gradually grown maybe in those first 10 years or so of its existence. So no, so very much, you know, so um, my family's had the sort of the farm up here um, for well, pretty much now 120 years. Um, so, you know, we, we've, we've um, always had a lot, 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 a lot up here. And, you know, you go back to sort of when I was growing up, which is, let's face it, 40, 50 years ago. Um, but, you know, a good, good 40 odd years ago. Um, but actually, you know, probably even if you went back, you know, the heyday of the farm back sort of um, 60 years ago, you know, we'd have employed like 20, 30 shepherds with their dogs, with families. There was lots going on. But, you know, over time, um, the nature of farming has changed fundamentally. You now use far less buildings, far less people, you know, where before you'd maybe have like 
five shepherds and the team teams of dogs in order to gather in a hillside. Well, now a nobody runs sheep actually on the hills up in this part of the world. It just can't can't do it economically, and. Now we really have one one farm manager who runs the farm, um, does everything, feeds the animals, looks after them all year round. So, as as the farms evolved, um, you know, I think we got to a stage where we had sort of unused buildings, and there was just a feeling that you know we weren't bringing that the amount of life and energy in the glen. You know, we sit here really right at the, the head of Loch Fine in a beautiful sort of classic U-shaped valley, um, proper sort of glacier-formed valley. Um, but, you know, the, the amount of life and energy in the Glen had been sort of declining over the years. So pretty much, I mean, you know, Dad, Dad had made most of his career down south working for a big, big, um, or Nestle, big, big food producer. Um, but when he retired, you know, they wanted to move back up here permanently and they really wanted to think of ways to how do we actually bring more energy more life back into the glen um and we had at that stage um, a disused dairy didn't even have a roof on it um and with lots of ideas bouncing around okay what are we going to do that's different how are we going to actually bring something back some energy back into the thing and at the same time <laughs> let's be honest dad moving back back up here dad dad very much liked his beer and was like well if we're going to move back up here and um I can't get good beer locally. Why don't we brew some good beer and see if we can persuade the local pubs to stock it? So that was kind of kind of where the story began from. It was just like, you know, we've kind of got this fantastic place, this beautiful location. We need to do something. And, you know, up here in Argyll, still today, there's a real problem with depopulation, with um, young people moving away, um, houses converting to either holiday houses or maybe people retired coming up well. But, you know, the, the village and the school, um, you know, that stopped years ago. But, you know, we, we went from a sort of having sort of 40, 50, 60 kids in it to having no one. And then to everyone have to get the bus down to noon in order to get to school. So it's, it was really part of this. How do we bring energy and enthusiasm back to our part of the highlands? Uh, and so that, that, I think, was a big part of the Genesis story. And then just, yeah food and drink and you know i also have a cousin that started loch fine oysters which is just like a stone throw away so a lot of your listeners might know the loch fine restaurants that you see yep. around the uk and so they're literally just a stone throw down the glen and they um i remember johnny began that just literally from a garden shed beside the road selling shucked oysters and you know they've sort of steadily built out and grown so i think there was also a feeling actually you know what food and drink businesses up here can work um so it was, yeah, it was sort of a mixture of different motivations, but very much initially, you know, let's take that old dairy, let's convert it into a brewery, let's brew some beers that we want to drink, and let's see if we can persuade other people up here that they should drink good beer too. Uh, so following on from that, how successfully did you manage, to, your dad managed to get some of those beers, say this one, the first one, Highlander, into the local pubs, considering that car scale has a bit of a mixed reputation and, and, and following up in, up in Scotland. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's kind of interesting. And that's also why we've been you know, really from the early days, you know, <laughs> there, there, there was a phase, I don't know if you remember when it was all about low kale, um, the camera ran big campaigns on low kale, which was beer brewed within 20 miles of the pub. 
And that was always kind of hard for us, for us because, frankly, there aren't a lot of pubs within 20 miles of us. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and certainly pubs that could actually look after and manage real ale uh, were really very few and far between. So, yeah, you know, there, were, there, were, there were a couple of really good stalwarts, local pubs that took us on relatively early on because, um, you know, they could and it was an interesting product. And But it kind of initially sold very much to the tourists. And, you know, we are in a big touristy part of the world. Lots of nice, nice folk coming up from England who would look for a local real ale and, oh, yeah, there's something on the bar. So it kind of kind of sold. But, you know, even from the beginning, um, Edinburgh and then Newcastle, was actually where we sold an awful lot of our beer. Um, and, you know, I've got, I've got a copy somewhere of an old um, handwritten dray run that my mother used to drive, drive used to have, hitch a trailer up to the back of the car, um, get guys to um, load, load it up with casks that be strapped on and she'd drive over to Edinburgh, park up outside the pub and then persuade the, um, the cellar managers to, or the, um, the, the manager on shift that they actually had to unload the trailer and get it down into the cellars. So um, it was it was really, you know, it was just using the farm, the farm vehicles and farm trailer, <laughs> tow it, tow it, tow it over to Edinburgh, down to Newcastle and um, do kind of what we had to do. You know, we had to go a little bit further, try a little bit harder in order to get the beer out. So, well, and you're going to have to forgive my ignorance. And I've, I've read quite a few things about fine ales and, and where you are. How far is that journey just to Edinburgh by car? Well, Edinburgh is a good sort of... Um, two and a quarter hour drive um if you're not towing a trailer probably close close to two, two and three quarters if you're towing a trailer um and newcastle's a good couple of hours beyond that so you know, that's that's where your delivery journey is beginning <laughs> it's quite a wide radius because we often speak on the show about you know beers that steve and i like from breweries who we consider north of where we are based in essex um yeah. but they're probably still five hours to where we are yeah. so you know you had to go five hours almost to get to your closest uh, still today i i have some um i have a, a fantastic um dray team um and you know we still deliver direct we deliver direct up to um aberdeen which is a good four-hour drive away and down to newcastle which is a five-hour drive away so you know, the guys are setting off early in the morning and they've got that kind of a drive before they do their first drop. So all these cushy breweries that are in sort of nice business parks on the edge of a city, and they're, 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 they're dray guys are complaining about doing two delivery runs in a day. It's like they don't know how easy they've got it. Um, I have a great team who work incredibly hard. That's a real contrast to our conversation recently with Abbeydale, who can get their beers out to so many places in a very mm. local area. So that's a real contrast, isn't it, Steve? Yeah, yeah. I mean, as, as Martin said, I, I knew you were kind of up in the wilds, but I, I think when you put it in, in into the context of how many minutes it takes to get to a place, that's when you start your eyes start to open a little bit and say, wow, you are really, really far up. Yeah. Yeah. To, to be fair, we're only about an hour and a quarter north of Glasgow, um, but Glasgow back in the early days was a really difficult market for real ale it's still frankly a very difficult market for real ale um so edinburgh and newcastle were, uh, were always and still do we sell far more into those than we can into glasgow you must be quite proud of the the, the location that you're in and you, you know with, you, with your family history going back so far uh, in, in terms of the generations that have farmed that land, to, to then 
you know, bring it into the, the, the modern age and, and, and you're now brewing off of the, the, the land and I'm assuming you've repurposed some of the other bits as well to, to, to make them more profitable, so, so, so to speak. But it, it must be something that sits at the heart of what finals do in, in terms of your provenance and, and the location. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, you know, we are, you know, it gives you, it gives you a few different things. Um, we're 100% a product, um, the business is a, is a result of our location. Everything we do, the way we tackle problems has to be um, based on where we are because our equation is different. You know, our water supply is taken from the streams, we call them burns, that flow down the hill behind the brewery. So, you know, if it's raining today, that's the water we're brewing with tomorrow. Um we have to, we have our own, we have like a salmon river that runs through the middle of the glen. Um, and dad was a, a passionate fisherman. Um, so we spent sort of um, the best part of um, 10, 15 years running a hatchery and restocking program on the river in order to make sure to try and encourage the wild salmon and to build, build the stock numbers back up. So therefore the level, we, we've got no mains um, drainage anywhere within 10, 10 miles of us so in order to treat that long further than that I don't, I don't even know where the nearest point where we would find a find an effluent treatment plant we could tie into but it would cost us millions so we therefore have to put our own effluent treatment plant in place in order to treat the water to a really high standard so when it goes out into the salmon river it's not going to damage anything that's there we are absolutely a product of sort of the place that we're in and at the same time, you know, our reason for being here is because actually people that come up and visit us, it's a beautiful part of the world. It is great. And, you know, we have to do what we can to really show people the validity of what we can do up here. And brewing actually sits very comfortably, you know, by taking the, by doing that circle with the water. When we started the brewery, we were 100 percent a sheep farm. But um, when you're brewing, you're, you're producing you land up with spent grain um, and Sheep are wonderful creatures in many ways, mostly for their imagination of the different ways they can find to kill themselves during their short lives. So um, <laughs> they are they are unbelievably stupid, in my personal opinion. So, um, so we started off then. We we started with um, three Highland cattle um, because you know we were producing spent grain and cows eat grain, so we were feed feeding the feeding the um, spent grain to the cattle. Um, I think we were up to about. 80 cattle before we could actually persuade mum that actually you know what we are going to have to start sending these off to the abattoir we've got far too many cattle we can't just use them for eating eating the grain um and then sort of in the last sort of four or five years we've actually taken out the sheep and put in a deer farm because we were producing more spent grain than the number of cattle that we could sensibly keep was justifying so we, we now run a mixed deer and cattle farm which is you know all taking the spent grain after we finish with the brewing process out feeding to get to the animals so when we empty the mash tun we empty it into the back of a Kubota and we drive it up the glen and we shovel it out and the deer are following along behind you helping themselves assuming then that the the the, the growth in livestock from what you've said there has has been as a direct consequence of the growth of the brewery and and you wanting to essentially recycle the the, the, the grains rather than just dispose of it Exactly. I, I would say it's more a sort of, a, um, you know, because, um, again, sheep have many wonderful um, qualities. Um, they taste fantastic, but they don't eat spent grain. So um, 
and I apologise to vegans um, who are listening. Um, but yeah, so so we've we've evolved the, um, the 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 mix of the farm to cattle and deer because those are that that they they will eat the spent grain. So yes, absolutely. It's it's all everything. It's a system. Everything has its place. It all sort of fits within its environment, and that's kind of what fine ales is all about. We are absolutely intrinsically both a product of our environment, but also you know again you you see this like you know, if you're looking at managing land over long periods of time, you do see that you know things evolve in order to fit what we're doing, and I think you know the the brewery and the farm have been part of that sort of long term evolution. So it feels like you're very much, uh, it's a symbiotic relationship between everything going on there, but you you, well, you definitely personally see yourself almost as like custodians of the land. Yeah, I think anyone that's, um, farmers all do, anyone that looks after land, anyone that farms, um, certainly from a family farm background, and I think that um, anyone would, would see themselves as that. That's just a fact fact of how, how, how the world is. But obviously farming, especially back in the day, I mean, because um, my my parents grew up on farms, both of them, and you know we used to get back and visit. And I think they thought it it would be fun for me and my brothers to help out, but I just think it was cheap labour. Um, <laughs> it is hard, it, you know, especially then it was hard work. I mean, this wasn't a an easy job. Yeah, no, very much. And, and look, I'll, I'll be honest, you know, we were in a position where um, we always had farming partners in who actually did did the hard graft of the farming. So I, I am not claiming that I had an idyllic childhood um, running around on tractors and um, and get, getting the harvest in and stuff. That that wasn't um, how, how things how things were. But it is. You no, know, I mean, there, there is no doubt that, ha- that farming is tough and making money out of farming up here in the west coast of Scotland is really tough. You know, it might be different if you're running big arable farms in East Anglia or in Yorkshire, you know, these these can be big money-making organisations or um, businesses. But um, but sheep farming up here on the west coast of Scotland is, is a really tough, tough game. Um, so I think there, were, there, there was genuinely a feeling that, you know, that... And as I said, it got to the stage where both us and pretty much everyone locally, we couldn't afford to run sheep on the hill anymore. So hence, we couldn't employ the numbers of people that we did. So as that was going, and that, and that would be a, a process that run from through decades. You know, that wasn't like a, a sort of a decision like that. It was a process that just sort of incremental decisions over the years, over decades, had just vastly reduced the number of people involved. Um so yeah, it was it was very much looking for something different, a different way to bring vibrancy and energy into into the local area. So and that was kind of very much the, the genesis of where where we came from. So it's a fascinating uh, background, and I'm, I'm still picturing because obviously, again, and forgive my my geography, and I know that a couple of our Scottish listeners will probably hammer me for this, but obviously, if you're on the west coast of Scotland, even just like you say, getting to Aberdeen isn't a simple journey is it no no i think the um it's it's yeah i mean scotland is 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 yeah the distances are bigger you know, you're used to, if you're used to the south of england i mean i remember um you know driving up from the south of england to here and then going onwards to see friends at sky and you know when you get here you're about halfway to the north of sky um 
And what's nice about us, you know, we're about an hour north of Glasgow, but in that hour, you absolutely go from the central belt into the highlands. So when you're, just before you get to us, about um, 20 minutes away, there's a high pass you have to come over called the rest and be thankful. And again, going back to my very long-suffering Dray team, but, um, you know, with all the change in climate we've had over the last few years, we've seen landslide after landslide shutting that road. Um, and when that road shut, you know, that adds an extra hour and three quarters onto our trip into Glasgow. So what should become an hour and a quarter, what should be an hour and a quarter's journey suddenly becomes a sort of two and a half, three hour journey to get to get down into Glasgow. So it's... Um, <laughs> It's, it's madness. I tell you, it's madness where you are. <laughs> it's bloody lovely, though. <laughs> it, is, it, it is. It's a mad place to try and run a business, but it's lovely. <laughs> if, if, if some of the pictures I've seen are anything to go by, it's an absolutely stunning environment to work in. Yeah, yeah. And that and that's part of the reason. You know, we have to tell the story. We're, we're in a fantastic location. We are so privileged to be here. So we just actually have to sort of embrace that. And all the challenges and the things which are difficult... But against that, we've got this brilliant location, the great stories to tell and everything to do as well. So we just have to take the rough with the smooth and try and work out how do we do the best we can with it. Talking of great stories, I, I, I think that's a beautiful segue into the next beer that, that we're going to drink this evening because we we couldn't be doing a, a, a podcast with the owner of Fine Owls w- without featuring y'all. Jamie... I'm, I'm sure most people possibly know the story of this beer, but but tell us tell us all about Yarl, how how it came about, and possibly also I, I don't think it's remiss of me to say that how it maybe changed the brewery's life forever. Yarl was interesting. Um, you know, I mentioned that um, you know my, my father died back in 2009, um, and. You know, at the stage back in 2009, you know, we were still probably called ourselves a microbrewery. Um, I always kind of felt like a microbrewery was defining yourself by the limit of your ambition. Um, so I wasn't necessarily wildly keen on microbrewery as a term. Um, and, but at the same time, you know, we were all about cask beer. We had a, a lovely um, head brewer, Will Wood, um, who left us and went down to Lakens um, over in, the, um, in East Anglia. Um, and Will was a really, you know, really talented brewer, a great palate, and really loved hops. You know, he, he joined us actually from Oakham. Um, <laughs> so, exactly. So the, 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 well, there you of, go. <laughs> there's part of the story straight away. <laughs> so, um, and you know, we'd actually done um, Avalanche was our first um, beer that we brewed with um, American hops. Um, you know, taking so so really taking American hops and applying them to a British cask beer, and I can't remember exactly which brew, year we brewed Avalanche in, but I'm going to, if it wasn't 2008, it was 2007, but 2008, 2007, um, and so we we kind of sort of put one foot on this sort of journey of playing with sort of new world ingredients, uh, but within British cask beer. Um, I think when I when I got involved in the business, you know, we were trying to decide how do how do we how do we go forward? Where where do we take take the business to? And you know, I spent a bit of time, to, you know, firstly just trying to understand what we were doing, which was um, interesting. You know, any small business, you've always got seventeen forms of chaos going on, um, and also understanding what other people were doing around the place in the UK. Um, 
and then went out to um, to the states for um, craft the craft brewers conference when it was in San Francisco, um, and spent a fantastic week talking to American brewers about what they were doing, and then spent another even better week sort of driving north from San Francisco, going to um, places like Lagunitas, to Russian River, to Anderson Valley, to um, Bear Republic. And, you know, just getting a chance to sit down with their brewers and have a nice chat with them about what was going on. And, you know, this was this was this was 2010 when there was a lot, um, you know, the, the American beer scene had come a, come a long way. But it was still really before much of that or just as that was starting to make an impact in the UK. And what was two things struck me um, talking to people over there was one was, you know, all those businesses here in Nevada. They started like we'd started in like a little 10 barrel kit in a small shed in a pretty remote location. And they built this phenomenally successful brand that brand had gone out there and they'd really introduced lots of people to great beer. So that, that struck me as being a really positive thing. Um, and then the other thing that really struck me was when you were talking to a lot of these American brewers, what reverence they held um, British cask beer in. Um, and, you know, I think I understood quite clearly right from that stage onwards that actually what has Britain contributed to the world beer heritage and its cask beer, the ability to express subtle, nuanced flavours in relatively low ABV, sessionable beers is kind of what Britain did better than anybody else. So I think coming back from that, what I wanted, decided what I wanted to do was to try and really focus on modern British beer, um, really great British beer. And probably, uh, you know, at that stage, I was quite a convert to the use of the term craft, but in a very all-encompassing term. You know, craft beer, to my mind, was the distinction between beer that was brewed for a, a group of people that would be passionate about it, whatever its format. You know, I, I, I still don't really buy the whole sort of cask versus craft distinction. The point, to my mind, is about brewing beer that, you know, if you try and brew a beer that appeals to the maximum number of people, you land up with standard lager, and that's the macro route. The craft route is about brewing beer that you'll find an audience for, people that will really enjoy what you drink. And so came back with this idea, okay, how do we brew modern British craft beers? Take the best of what we're about here and apply over that um, the best of what the new world's got to teach us. Um, and over the years, you know, we've learned so much from people, brewers from other countries. Um, for us, very much, um, the States and Italy have been the two, the two legs of our, our international learning journey. Um, so, yeah, so, so when we then heard um, John, um, the head, head brewer at, um, at Oakham, um, told us that he'd, he'd been over to Yakima and had discovered this fantastic hop citra. And he was so excited about it, he actually got some air freighted over um, from, um, from Yakima so he could get it straight into brew. Um, you know, we obviously hadn't been on that, 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 that buying trip, but, you know, we were very happy. Well, that's interesting. That's good. Let's, let's um, speak, speak to Ferrans and let's get an order in for a, a few brews worth to... Um, to give it, give it, give it a go. See what, see what this hop can do. Um, and then we were then having, you know, our, our sort of um, next sort of um, annual beer festival was coming up. So, so we we used we we sort of held it back and used it for that. Um, you know, back in those days, and still to a degree, still to a large degree now. You know, our approach was, you know, we'll try something. If people, you know, we'll brew a beer we like. If people enjoy it, 
we'll brew more of it. If they don't like it, we'll try something different. But as long as we like it, we'll put it out there to the market and see what people think about it, see what their reaction is. And what happened with the Earl was it got a great reaction. Um, you know, we put it out, people loved it, they wanted to try try it again. And so it rapidly, you know, it went from being a one-off to being a two, three, four-time brew to being part of the core range that we can't live without. So it's, it's absolutely kind of evolved. It's, it's, it's evolution of the brewery has followed how much people have enjoyed drinking it. Um, and so, yeah, and we're, and we're lucky. Lots of people have enjoyed drinking it, and that's been fantastic. I mean, but yeah, I mean, that, that, that whole uh, beer experience you had in the States back, you know, in, in 2000, 2008 2009 when you uh, 2010 to, I think 2010 I mean I know that our listeners can't see but surely Jamie you saw the look of sheer envy on the face of Steve <laughs> and myself as you as you name checked those breweries you went to <laughs> in like 10 years ago plus I mean yeah. Steve were going oh, you're just talking about our fan one of our fancy calls in the states there going through some of those places yeah um, early early beer journey discoveries for us for sure yeah um, I, I was very very lucky you know and i was lucky to um get get an introduction to um some some really great brewers in those places and they were very generous to give me some time and show show me what they were doing and it was it, it felt like you know the whole scene then you know the scene in the uk was smaller but what was also interesting was the scene in america was so much smaller you know that craft brewers conference i go i go to the craft brewers conference every year and now they book out some of the the biggest um conference centers in the states but back then it was in it was in, it was in a big hotel but a, a hotel in um, in san francisco and everyone kind of fitted in and it felt like everyone knew everyone and it was yeah it was different times it's it's kind of intriguing how much it's changed i mean look at that i mean seriously yeah <laughs> I, mean, I mean this is still only a year or so in the can so steve and i had yeah. it in the can last year i think yeah, I think I think it'll be a year and a bit since we, I think we we canned it pre-pandemic actually. So I'm guessing it must be coming up for two years since we started canning it. I mean, it's translated yeah. astonishingly well, in my opinion, considering <laughs> that most people's love of yard is probably the cask version. Absolutely, and I think that's also also getting sort of. Um, when we moved it to council, so we've always done yarl in 500 ml bottles, almost. Probably the second year of brewing Yala for cask, we, we did it in the 500ml bottles, and that's been great. And generally with our bottled beers, our approach has been, whatever our cask beer recipe is, we put exactly the same into bottles. But when we decided that this, so this came out for Yarl's um, 10th birthday. Um, yeah, well, there was, there was you, Ghost Ship, and Oakham Citra in that same sort of period, all yeah. released your citra-based beers, didn't you? Exactly. But anyway, so... Um, with with the cans, um, we wanted to bring the, we what you get with with a either a can or a bottle um, serve is um, and it, and to a degree um, a keg serve as well is you're get you're getting a um, a colder more carbonated serve compared with cask beer um, and to a degree that drop in temperature is suppressing some of the, um, the the aromas that you'll get out of cask and that's why cask beer is a brilliant way of expressing flavour at relatively low ABVs. Um, and at the same time, the um, that that colder, more carbonated serve has quite a different mouthfeel. So actually, for the can, we use we we have sort of tweaked the recipe compared with cask. So we've actually added in some oats, which give it a um, a sort of a little bit more body to the mouthfeel, trying to mimic 
um, the cask mouthfeel. We'll get clipped, not mimic, but to get closer to that sort of cask mouthfeel actually in the can. And then we've added an extra dry hop, again, in order to give it a little bit more aroma bumph to marry up against that colder serve. So, um, so yeah, so, so we, we're aiming for the same flavour point in the glass, but actually our route of getting there is different because the, the route by which we present it to the drinker is different. So we're actually trying to get the flavour to be the same, even though the beer is the route by which we get the beer there is slightly different. The, the, the beer, it, it, it's an iconic beer. No, no matter which way you look at it, it, re- it really is. And it, it's it's one that I think certainly from my point of view was was the first time that I, I came across fine owls was as a result of Yarl. And obviously, as, as, as Martin alluded to, it, it did come out in, in that sort of 18-month, two-year period where you had Oakham Citra and then you had Yarl and then you had Adam's Ghost Ship who were all showcasing what was at the time this brand new American hop that had all these fantastic flavours in that we've never tasted anything like it before. And, and that's obviously continued to be a staple in, 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 in Yarl, hasn't it? The, the, the citra hop. And, but that, that doesn't, that, that must come with its challenges as well, because we, we know that hop varieties will change from year to year, dependent on what's been happening with the weather and how they've been harvested. So how, I suppose there's two questions here is is firstly what's what's your sort of relationship like in in, in terms of with, with hot merchants in terms of making sure you get the best possible citra product to put into this beer and and secondly how do you then counterbalance any of those variations that you see from year to year to make sure that essentially what you get in the glass is the same thing over and over again yeah, and I think I think it's interesting. One of the things we like about you know we you know, we do a lot of new beers, but actually, even in a brewing sense, trying consistency is actually a very interesting challenge. Is how do you actually really produce the same product? And so you know the fact is that you know, and I think it's it's quite easy to forget. You know, beer is not an industrial product. Our raw materials are agricultural, and so. As seasons change, both on the malt side and the hop side, you will get quite different characteristics coming through from your raw materials. Um, we're very lucky. We've always had a brilliant relationship with Charles Verham, who are one of the um, who are great hop merchants in the UK. There's, there's now perhaps rather more than there were back in the day. Um, but, you know, we've always had a really good relationship with them. And what's been nice is that, you know, we've, we've been lucky enough to be able to go with them over to Yakima, um, each year, sort of pre pre pandemic, and actually meet the growers. Um, and again, you know, I think that's what I found really striking the, the couple of times I've done that is how much the growers appreciate that because you know they're growing hops, and you know, and like 10, 15 years ago, they never kind of saw the brewers. So that wasn't um, people weren't that interested in what what the hop growers were doing. They were just buying the hops. Whereas now it's this real pilgrimage during harvest time. All the brewers are there. Everyone's out there talk, talking, talking to them. And what you really see when you're talking to the growers is you get real differences between um, fields at one end of Yakima Valley to the other end of Yakima Valley. Um, the way the growers, the, the amount of irrigation water each different brewer has been able to get. I mean, Yakima Valley is basically a desert. Uh, all the hops are grown with irrigation, with snow melt from the, um, the glaciers and the snow. Um, up on the, I think it's the Cascade Mountains above above Yakima. 
so and and each different farm has different water rights and therefore has the ability to get get back get, get access to different amounts of water and all of these things affect the um the hops and then really and then the, the the drying systems that the hop growers have got in and really what other hops they've got planted so what their picking window is for each hop makes a heck of a difference as well so what's been been lovely working with with charles ferrum um, particularly is that we've been able to go out to yakima and actually meet the different growers and you know and now um we now work a bit with ych who actually own the um the citra variety um and you know we've been able to actually go out meet the growers understand really what's driving their life what makes their world work or not work uh, what's been difficult or good for them each year but particularly it means we can actually go out we can rub samples from all the different um, growers and we can actually decide which um which grower that year and then we buy our whole our whole usage for the whole year from that one grower so it hopefully year on year it gives us the ability to each year find something that for us is true to style classic citra, the citra that we want for Yarl. And so each year by our whole year's requirement from that one grower, which is absolutely fantastic. And you're being literal there, aren't you? When you're saying about rubbing the hops, you're literally talking about rubbing the, the hop plants and smelling what that aroma is like. Well, I'd say the, um, it's, it can get almost, though there's a, there's a lovely grower um, in Yakima. They're, they are the most wonderful, welcoming family when you go and visit them. But, you know, it's almost... I mean, it's not it's not their front room. It's very much you know they have a, a sample room, um, but you you do feel slightly terrible. You, you know you arrive. You know they've got samples um, in sort of because you so hops when they come off the um, when the hops get harvested. Again, it's it's a wonder. It's a beautiful thing. You see all these amazing old Dodge pickup trucks that have been driving through the hops for years, and they've kind of got this amazing patina where the paintwork's been scraped off by the hops over the course of twenty years' life. But so they'll, they'll cut all the hops off and they'll take take them back to the uh, to these amazing uh, picking drying stations, which range from the incredibly modern German, totally automated systems to some some growers that operate these amazing traditional wooden um, shaking systems that you really feel like you're in something that somewhere, I don't know, Richard Scarry meets, um, I don't know, Professor Brainstorm. It's just, it's like crazy automation. Um and anyway, so you've got to, you've got to, get, got to get the flowers or the um, the rhizomes off of the hops, and then you've got to get them fed into a dryer. So by the time you're actually sampling it, they've been they've been picked, they've been um, dried, and they're through into the sample room. But then it, it does it feels so strange. You know, you're there, sort of rubbing and rubbing the hops. You're literally you are you get them in your hands, give them a really good rub between your hands, and they get a good big faceful of them to sort of see see what they taste like. And it does feel horribly like you are man you are marking somebody else somebody's homework in front of <laughs> them, their wife, their children, <laughs> and the and everyone else has been working on the farm all year. And this is kind of their output. And you know, there you are as a bunch of vis visiting brewers saying, Yeah, we like that one, but not quite so much as we like this one. You know, you're trying trying to find um ways of not saying, actually, that one's just a dog. <laughs> like I pity the poor bugger that's gonna land up brewing with that batch of the hops. Because every batch of hops will get brewed with by somebody. But you know what's interesting? You know, every every you know, by and large, everything's going to find its place out there in the market. A lot of the stuff that really, if something's really not smelling that great, it's going to go for extract, and it's um, you know the big brewers are just going to get the alpha acid, which is all they want, and they're going to drop like milliliters of it into um, every pint of standard lager. Um, whereas you know 
brewers like us, you know, we want we want everything. We want the whole flower. Do you have to? Is there a certain time of year? I mean, is there a certain period in that harvest time when you choose to go with Charles Farron? Because if the if the harvesting takes five to six weeks, I'm guessing you're not there for the full five to six weeks. No, no, we're we're, we're like, they're, they're, they're Charles um, from you know, they they as as do many of the other hop growers. Um, you know, they organise a visit for sort of um, late 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 on in the harvest program. Because as I said, by the time you're rubbing them and sampling them, you need to, it needs to be and you know okay, so it will go through the picker and dryer the day that it's harvested. And, you know, there isn't any field of hops that's not going to get harvested. Everything's coming down. It's all going to get harvested. It's all going through the, through the dryers. So you're talking about where it goes to. So basically, you want to be there kind of um, like week four or five of the, of the harvest, because that way there'll be enough that'll be through and into the, um, into the sample rooms that you can actually get a, get a flavour for what, what's gone on in that, in that harvest. So you, you need you need to be there relatively late on in the harvest. You know, I've got, I've got a friend, Wayne, who um, um, founded Cigar City and, um, you know, they're, they're now part of a, a much bigger group. He'll basically spend the whole harvest up in um, up in Yakima because he's buying so much Simcoe um, that he kind of needs to be there right the way through. And, you know, and the, the guys from Sierra Nevada are on site and they're actually telling the, um, you know, they're working with the farmers. And re- but really, to a pretty high degree, telling them, right, that feels ready. I want that picked now. And you know, if you've got Sierra Nevada's firepower, it's kind of like, okay, drop everything else. That's the field that we're harvesting, <laughs> um, and we'll, we'll bring bring all the bring those two, three, four, five hop yards in. Uh, field is um, Scottish terminology. Hop yards are what they what they would call them. So yeah. There's, um, you know, absolutely different. Diff- you've got to understand your place in the pecking order and um, how do you navigate that to your best success? But uh, it's far, far, far from easy. <laughs> that, that, that must be a, a tough one when, when you're on somebody's home turf working with, with, with some of the, the, the biggest names in beer to, to, to say, well, actually, no, we'd quite like some of that field. <laughs> well, I, I think I think the reality is we're never going to be offered it. Yeah, yeah, you're never. You're, there's <laughs> no never chance. Is that? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that wasn't one of the one of the songs that ever made the table when we were there. So um, it's you know it's 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 fascinating. But for me, coming from the agricultural background, what was really good was like you know, you're really seeing farmers preparing their product, doing their bit of the supply chain as well as they possibly can, um, and that's that's great. You know, we we are as I said, you know. We're starting with agricultural products, hops and malt, and we've got to then take those and produce the best beers we can out of them. And as you say, that is that that must be quite fascinating for you as a. I'm, I'm going to use the term loosely, maybe as a farmer or yeah. as as an owner of a farm business to to go to a, another farm business and, and and to see those similarities in terms of what what you're doing in Scotland with, with with your business and and how how they're dealing with a business that's purely producing the product that you need to make your beers taste absolutely really good. Yeah, no, it is. They they operate on a scale out there which is just huge. Um, you know, the first time I went, I was with a um, a UK hot farm. We were talking it through. The first place that we went to, um, you know, they had four thousand acres of hop yards. That I think was slightly larger than the entire UK hop. Uh, that was just one farm, and <laughs> yeah, mind blown. It was a. Um, and, you know, when they, when they put in a sort of um, a picking drying shed, 
they're investing 20 30 40 million dollars in the picking picking drying shed it's like we don't have we don't have a shed that that expensive for, for looking after our deer i can assure you of that much so i mean a scale again you know which we've talked about a few times tonight but um i mean that backstory that information and and also presumably you don't have to go with charles farham i mean you could no. rely on other people you could rely on them as the as the hop importers Absolutely. Um, does this sort of tell us just how much you value not just Yarl, but everything that you produce from so, the farm? Because what we're trying to do is to produce the best possible examples of what we can do. And, you know, it's a big investment. You know, I mean, now it's it's it's, it's um, our head brewer that goes. And, you know, that's like 10, 10 days worth of his time. That's flights, it's hotels. It's a, it's a chunky investment you've got to put into, into place in terms of doing it. But if you really want to do, do it well, to make the best possible examples you can of the, um, of the beers that you're, um, that you're trying to produce, you, you've got to work with your raw ingredients. You've got to really care about where your materials are coming from. So for us, yes, it's going a little bit further, but it's also what you need to do to produce the best you possibly can. Well, all I can say is that didn't slow me down drinking it. None of that information. <laughs> Excellent. I, I, I basically, while you chatted away for like 10 minutes plus, I've just downed that 440 milliliter can of Yarl. And I think it has, I said it at the start, it's translated so well into the can as well, which I think is just, like I said, for the amount of love that it would have had for cask. Yeah. And again, referencing a conversation recently we had with Adidas about Moonshine, then there must have been an element of nervousness about can we now the the canned version? Yeah, absolutely. But you know, I think you know I I always have canned yarl in my fridge. <laughs> it's, it's the product that I want, so you know I'm I'm happy with it because I wanted to to express as close to cask as we could get it in in a format which is easier for me and anyone else that wants to choose us to to have in their fridge. So, um, yeah, Jamie, I'm surprised you don't just have a direct line (laughs) into your home of fresh yarl. Because believe me, if if, if I owned a brewery, that is exactly what I'd have. Of my flagship beer, I I would have a constant supply of the freshest possible version of it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I like I like I like variety in my drinking. So I like to drink lots of other people's beers too. <laughs> but, uh, but yes, my desk is um uh, it's at least seven meters away from a permanent permanent cask tap of yarl. So, okay, um, so not 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 a million miles to go. No, no, my, my, my desk my desk is absolutely fine. The fridge at home is maybe a little bit further. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, as I said, we finished the yarl, and eager-eared listeners may have heard that we've cracked St. Kels open. Which is a bit of a an anniversary special, isn't it, Jamie? Yeah. So I think with um, sort of twenty years coming up, um, and as I said, you know, we have this sort of um, sort of very long term view as to what we're trying to achieve with the brewery. Um, and we'd never done a barley wine before. Um, so, but we have done quite a lot of barrel aged um, products of one sort and another. So we really thought we would try a um, a, a a barrel-aged barley wine. Um, yeah, so we, we bought a selection of casks um, in order to try try what the results would be. I have to say, we did get slightly caught by sort of the run into the pandemic, so we were a little bit later going into them than we wanted to. And when we when we got them through the end, we did, what we decided to do was actually the blend of the three was what really worked best for us. 
Um, so yeah, so this is this is a, um, a really nice. It's um, you know, it's it's come up as sort of an eight point two percent. Actually, sorry, I'm going to pour myself some and stop yabbering. Um, eight point two percent barley wine, um, given a um, the best part of a year um, in um, in those three casks, and really it should be a beer which should age really well you know i'm going to put some of this away for our 30th birthday because I, I hope that i hope it'll stand up and be good in 10 years time we need to dive into this one now because the aroma smells amazing oh, does it ever so uh cheers and thank you very cheers. much jamie cheers. good health um where's the booze <laughs> there it is <laughs> oh there's a bit of warmth right at the back there yeah, but it's still yeah. quite it's still quite subtle. Um, but the, I mean, the nose, I was getting like this sort of woody and chocolatey kind of notes coming off it. It's a very dark, well, maybe in my light. It's quite a dark, bar, it's quite a dark barley wine. Um, the, the, I think the, the, there is definitely a bit of that Madeira. Sherry, I'm not getting quite so much of because it's not necessarily my favourite. Definitely, the, I'm getting the Madeira coming through. Um, it is very smooth. Very smooth to drink. I, I think. I think age. You know what. I, what I'm really learning is that you know time is a wonderful thing, and I don't. I think that you know. I don't think we use it enough um, in in brewing. We could all be a bit, and you know, I, I get the point. You know, um, you know, beer is cheese, not wine. You know, it, by and large, it should be drunk fresh. But actually, there are some beers, and I find very much the same with our um, our sort of classic imperial stout, Mills and Hills. Actually. Two, three, four, five years really improves that beer, and I, I'm a great fan of taking time to let things mellow out and smooth out and come together nicely. And I think that mellowness and smoothness comes from giving it enough time in barrel that the, the flavours marry together and then just mellow out, and you don't get anything that's too harsh in any one direction. And I think that's why I think it'll get better over time. I think. I mean, I'm already fascinated to know what that that could be like in the in the future. I suppose the thing with time is that, I mean, for any business, time is money, literally. Absolutely, because it, it's sitting there, it's making you absolutely nothing, and it's taking up space. Yep. So, you know, I I understand completely what you're saying, and even if I think about some of the really good lager brewers in this country and others who actually store their lager for way longer than the macro brewers. Yeah. But because they know that they want that to be the best product they can produce. And something that I've got a sense of tonight when we've been talking is definitely, it's definitely something that fine ales want to do is just be the best example of that beer star that we can do. Mm. Absolutely that. And, you know, I mean, no one thinks that we're going to be selling thousands of hectolitres of, um, of barley wine every year. I mean, but, you know, I, th I think time's really important, you know, and that's a little bit, particularly with our origin series, which, is, which I know you've had on the on the show before. But you know, it's all about giving things the right amount of time, um, and you know, so yeah, we we do need to find space. You know, and, you know, our problem is we've got lots of farm space, but converting space for the animals to live in to space that you can actually store some barrels in is um, horribly expensive um, proposition. So we are constantly short of space. Um, but nevertheless, you know, I think it's really important where you can to give things the right amount of time. 
and particularly, you know, with the origin stuff, which were moving to be a sort of a purely spontaneous uh, project, you know, there you're talking about blending to one-year-old, two-year-old, three-year-old product. You've got to have enough of it coming through to build up enough of a barrel store that you've actually got product which will tell tell the story in more than tiny quantities. So yeah, time time is time is really key, I think, on some of these products. I think it's I think it's really interesting that you're talking about the, the origin series in particular and, and and the time that those beers need. What what was the decision behind adding that to the portfolio, so to speak? Because I'm I'm, I'm guessing up until that point you were producing you know a, a solid core range yarl had become this immensely popular beer what did someone get bored and go oh let's let's <laughs> let's let's add something else to the portfolio as well um yeah i think i probably do get bored quite easily <laughs> oh, so, it, so it was you it was it, yeah. was, it was all down to you jamie was it no, no yeah no i think i think that one probably was um i said you know what we're trying to do with fine ales all of our clean beers. And it's, I think the theme that ties all of our clean beers together, by clean, I mean everything outside the origins range, is about trying to sort of take the best of the British brewing tradition and overlay that with new world ideas. So um, back in 2014, you know, we spent sort of the best part of three million quid building our new brewery. And that was really hard engineered to be a classic British style brew house. But every decision about how do we produce the best quality beer, put the money behind anything that will make it improve the quality of the beer that's coming out of that plant. Um, so with all the clean programs, you know, we had that very clean vision about sort of modern British beer and trying to marry up uh, overseas thing. But at the same time, you know, Right, going back to that sort of trip back, again, I'm slightly confused, 2009, 2010, um, in the States. Um, yeah, I remember going to sort of Russian River and drinking supplication and consecration. And that, you know, I hadn't really been exposed to a lot of Belgian beer. And it was just like, wow, okay, that's just something totally different. <laughs> but then, and then talking to the guys from Jester King about how, and Ron um, Adner is a, is a wonderful guy. Um, and talking to him about how Jester King, you know, they were really trying to tell a story of place in the beer. And thinking, actually, you know, what we're all about at Finals is we're about where we're from. So we kind of had the opportunity. When we built the new brewery, which is an old sheep shed, we had the original brewery, which is an old dairy, that is now firmly separate. And, you know, uh, Malkar Head Brewer was always, yes, we can brew with Brett, as long as it's the other side of that large granite mountain just beside <laughs> the brewery. But when we were actually could put the two breweries into two separate um, buildings, it was like, well, okay, now we can play more on the, on the small brewery. We'll take all the clean beers out of the small brewery. And that's where we will play with Brett and with time and really try and tell stories of place and what it means to be a brewer in Argyle right now at this point in time. Um, and that was really what Origins is all about. So it took it took a long time. You know, the, the original sort of um, concepts for, for Origins really came back in 2012, 2013. Uh, but we couldn't do anything with them until we built the new brewery. And then even when we built the new brewery, we were still using the, the small brewery for clean beers, for specials and stuff. So we were still being quite cautious. 
And so it was only really as our volumes got to a stage where we could actually take the small brewery and dedicate it to a, to a wild beer program that um, that we actually really got the space to sort of evolve and grow that. And then, you know, these, these beers take up three years to come through. So it takes a long time um, between starting out on that journey and where you get to eventually. So, yeah, but yeah, so, so it's kind of like a passion project. I don't expect Origins to ever make us any money particularly, but what I want it to do is to be able to tell the story about brewing beer in Argyle in 2021, what it means right now in a different way, actually through in the glass in a way that perhaps the Clean Beer Programme, it tells, it tells the story in a different way to the way the Clean Beer Programme does. I think the, the the thing with Origins that stands out for me is that it's it, it's again that the, the name is really really true to what it's doing because it is using all of the natural environment that you find around the brewery is isn't it so it's it's using yeah. ingredients that you're you're foraging from from the, the local fields it's using the natural beasties that are in the air that are getting into that beer and they're doing their thing and they're they're, they're making it taste as it does and and those those cultures will be truly unique to to fine hours won't they that's not something that can be replicated anywhere else yeah. in the world because only you are brewing in that environment absolutely no that's it i mean it's a product of our place but also what we're what we're doing with the origins okay for the first um sort of four to six months which is like the saccharomyces fermentation we keep them in a sort of temperature controlled cellar but then after that they're just going outside into the natural environment so if we have a hot summer you know this summer was a pretty decent summer in argyle it'll give us one flavor profile if we have a cold winter, it'll do something else to the beers. So they're also absolutely a product of their time. You know, each evolution of the beer, each year's production, will reflect the climate in Argyle during the time that beer spent in the barrel. So it's designed very much looking for time and place. Tell tell the story with both. Yeah, we, we've been, I mean, personally, I've definitely been impressed with the matter of fact, there's been a few, for me and Steve, a few divisive ones every now and again as well. I also feel like that's probably what you were trying to do is not you're making beer that to challenge people as well as represent the area you're in. Yeah, no, I think I think it's, um, you know, nothing should ever be in a bottle unless as a team here, we're happy that that's something that we're happy to go out and we we're, think represents and tell, tells the story. Um, there is an element of, you know, as a team, we're, we're learning and evolving, um, you know, you, you we, we are, you know, we're standing on the shoulders of giants, you know, the people like the Cantillons, uh, the Dre Fontaines, you know, they have really mastered this. They, they can produce a beautiful, elegant product year on year and do it brilliantly. Um, we're trying to learn and adapt to how do we do that within our environment and actually tell meaningful stories that work. So, yeah, absolutely. I think I think some things will, will divide the crowd very, very much. Um, but as I said at the beginning, you know, I don't think that craft beer, you're ever trying to produce beer which will appeal to everybody. Because if you want a beer that appeals to everybody, well, there's a hundred years of brewing history that tells you that standard lager. Um, so that's not our goal. Our goal is to produce beers that a group of people will really enjoy and get into. 
Um, and that's what I hope we're achieving with Origins. But absolutely, it's still early days. It's still very evolutionary. And I'll probably still be saying it's early days in another five years' time um, because that project really happens on a close, slow clock speed. Um, so it takes takes time for the iterations to come through. But, yeah, be assured, everything that goes out of here is something that, as a team, we've said, yep, that's valid. That deserves to go into bottle. We should take that one, but that one through and finish it. And, yeah, we've even had stuff that's gone into bottle. And it's evolved in a way we don't like it in bottle. And it's like, well, okay, it's still not going out the door. Um, so everything that goes out the door is a beer that we think tells the story that we're trying to tell with it. Whether that'll appeal to any individual's palate, that's down to, down to the individual drinker. But yeah, no, we're doing our point. best to tell the story. Yeah, mm. And that's what me and Steve said before. We, we, we have different palates, and especially when it comes to maybe mixed firm and foraged beers, we, that's probably where me and Steve will diverge the most on our yeah. beer conversations and our, our beer, respective beer journeys. But the thing is, while, while we're sipping this, and it'd be really remiss of us not to talk about this, given the whole thing about provenance, place, location, Fine Fest. <laughs> now, a lot of the pictures which we've seen and Steve referred to earlier are, are, are definitely around the Fine Fest. Um, and the picture's always, it looks wonderful. Um, why did you start Fine Fest and how much are you looking forward to it happening again? Yeah, no, Fine, Fine Fest was really, um, you know, I said earlier, we're, we're lucky. We're in a beautiful part of the world. It's um, a great place to visit. And it really came to myself and my brother to a degree. Um, the two of us were talking about what kind of did we enjoy most about growing up here as kids? And it was kind of those days when you had loads of friends over, barbecues and good beer, sitting back and enjoying the place. And it was like, well, okay, let's, let's just do that on a bigger scale. And let's kind of put the festival back into beer festival. Um, you know, back in, again, in 2009, an awful lot of the beer festival scene was, um, you know, camera beer festivals, which are great, but happening in town halls under strip lights with plastic chairs and tables. And it's like, yeah, okay, yeah. That's nice. I get to taste lots of beers. But actually, for me, you know, beers is sort of belongs in the middle of the table, surrounded by friends, having a good time. And, you know, what makes a good time? Beer, good food, good music, good bunch of friends. And that's what we're trying to do with Fine Fest, is give you the environment where you can put those ingredients together in a fantastic setting and you can have a good time. So when was the, when was the first fi was Fine Fest... The first fine fest, fine fest, or did you just do a festival and everyone seemed to really love it and you carried on? Uh, it was very much the the first. It was always intended as the first first of a series. Um, so it was, and it was, it was in two thousand and nine, the same year. And I think Dad died in May, and we decided. And actually, you know, we had a really good wake for Dad afterwards. And we thought, let's do that again, but we'll do it for the public. So we, we got the same okay, marquee. We got the same marquee bar back, and he's like, let's put a marquee into, into the courtyard. There was a brewery here is in, a, in a sort of an old traditional courtyard. And we thought, let's put the same marquee into the courtyard. We've got friends who play, play, play some great, great, great music. We'll get them to come over and play, play, play some stuff. Um, We'll get beer up from a lot of our friends, um, other breweries around the UK. Now, I remember right from the get-go, we had beer from Oakham, from Thornbridge. Um, well, you've got like, me there already. I mean, seriously. Yeah. So you it, was, it, was, it, was, it was, you know, it's a nice lineup of beer. Um, 
And, you know, and we've got beautiful locations. So we said to people, if you want to camp, we'll open the gate to the field and you can go, go and camp in the field. Um, and, you know, and it's, it's sort of, it's sort of worked. But, you know, I remember that, that very first fine fest, um, there was a point in the evening about sort of eight o'clock in the evening and it was just getting a little bit dicey. Is there going to be enough energy to keep this party going? And a busload of about 15 people came in from Araka, which was um, a nearby village. And they just provided that extra impetus, which just meant it was all work and everyone had a great time. And it was really good. And it, it really, really did, 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 did work well. But it was on a, you know, we probably had 200 people. Um, and, and the last one, which I presume, I'm, I can't remember, you didn't do one this year in the end, did you? No, we couldn't. It was just yeah. too soon. Um, so the last one was 2019, and we were up to just about, just shy of 3,000. Um, which um, I mean, even with your space and land, there must have been, given where you are, a lot of people must be staying. Almost everybody. Um, so everyone either stays or they stay in one of the local towns and villages, and we run a um, shuttle buses to and fro. So almost everybody either camps or huge growth in the number of camper vans. Uh, we also have yurts for people that want their glamping option. So if you want to um, arrive to a nicely nicely put up yurt with um, bed and um, linen and stuff, that 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 we can do all of that as well. So yeah, pretty much everybody camps. Um, you know, I mean, I would say the sort of uh, I can't remember the numbers, but it's something like it's well over ninety percent of people camp for the weekend. And you know, and we put on two hundred and fifty of the best beers we can find from around the UK and a couple of international bars generally um, an Italian bar, which is, and what we've always tried to do with our bars, having created our, our import bars, is rather than buying from a particular brewery, what we want is someone to create a selection from that, that country. So, um, so Mackey, uh, which is a lovely bar in Rome, have been very generous and created an Italian selection for us in a number of years. And last, in 2019, we had Shelton Brothers from the States um, created a brilliant selection of, um, of American beers for us. Um, and, you know, and at the same time, we'll put on cider and um, cocktails, all of that stuff. And then we'll have a couple of music stages. And, you know, it's not big name bands, but it's like good Scottish bands, people that are sort of breaking through at the moment in Edinburgh, Glasgow, um, but are really going to, stuff you can really dance to. And, you know, we hope the dance floor generally attests that we can see a couple of thousand people up and dancing. Um, you know, we, we put live music on to midnight and then we'll put a um, DJs on to two in the morning. So you can burn off as much energy as you like on the dance floor. And then, you know, during the day, you know, so we have, we have got, if you want to go up and do some yoga, you can get up and do some yoga. We do a walker's bar up at a fallen down bothy um, um, which is about an hour and a bit's walk up the glen. So if you want to get some exercise, um, or if you've got dogs with you, lots of people come up with their dogs, so you can walk an hour or so up the glen, um, have some beers sitting beside the river. If you're foolish enough, you can go for a swim, but we don't don't encourage it. <laughs> but um, and um, you know, and then we do pub quizzes. You know, we try basically. It's a weekend of beer, but beer, food, music, and friends. It's it's different to anything else that's out there, but um, it's good fun. Always sounds fantastic, but there's one thing I want to pick up on, and you mentioned it before. Where's the love of the Italian beer scene stem from? Um, I think it stems from the fact that um, actually, I don't know. We were working in Italy beforehand. Um, we have a very nice Italian importer, and you know, I never really wanted to export beer very much. 
but um, these guys came over, they visited us, they told us they'd look after us well. So, um, so you know, we started working with them and that started getting us some friends over there. Um, and then we also employed a really lovely um, Italian brewer. He, was, um, he came to us to wash casks for three months and um, stayed for five years. Um, and so he it's because he couldn't get out of Argyle. It's miles away from anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> exactly that <laughs> yeah so um so he introduced us to people as well um but you know what i love about the italian beer scene um you know i always think the, the american beer scene it's about taking all of that technology and science control that the Ameri- that the, the big guys use to produce an absolutely consistent pretty bland tasteless product but absolutely perfect consistently and the american craft brewers take that that approach and how do we apply it to produce the best beers we possibly can so it's all about the science the process control the technology the approach in italy though is much more one of the gastronomy um like being a chef and it's like i always remember the um people of a certain age will do um the cannonball run the um the movie where it's like um he's like saying italian driving and he tears tears the rear view wing mirror off and throws it behind him it's like what behind me doesn't matter and it's that sort of sense that actually if it worked and it tastes great do it again why did it work it doesn't matter quite so much as the fact that it really did and it really tasted great so I think the Italian beer brewing scene brings this very different perspective, which is much more from like a chef kind of an angle um, about the understanding of flavours and putting putting flavours together. And I think that's a really interesting addition to the approach of the American scene, where you're taking the process control and the science to how do you deliver the best flavours. So yeah, I like I like I like both traditions. I think both both have got something interesting to teach us. So you can learn, learn, learn from them, and uh, and they also. You can meet lots of lovely people in Italy and go to lovely beer festivals and um, hang out with, with hang out in great places. So it's a good place to go to. <laughs> well, other than bringing back Fine Fest uh, again, so that you can have more of those wonderful experiences of people coming together, what is next for Fine Hours? You've been doing this for for, for twenty years now. You're a quite significant milestone in 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 the brewery's history. What what What's in what's in the future? Is there, is, is there anything that, that that you're planning in the in the short long term? I mean, obviously, in the short term, we're we're, we're celebrating twenty years of fine hours, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly that. Um, no, it's interesting. You know, I think you know the, the goal the goal with fine ales is yeah we're trying to build a business for the long term, so we're not trying to sort of um, rush at any gates. We're not trying to. Um, meet any particular deadline and I think where we're going to but the when we built the new brewery the brew house um, and everything that we put in sort of the core infrastructure of the new brewery is sized for a much bigger business than where, than where we are now so what we're really hoping to do is over the course of the next 10 15 20 years to really steadily build out our brand and get more people introduced to what we're all about to tell our story to more and more places around the country and get people infused and engaged with what we're all about as a business so you know so that that's very much one part of it um and you know i think it's one of those things you know when i'm looking back and i'm like saying you know like the family's had the farm here for like this sort of 120 years you know, ideally, in the happiest of all possible worlds, fine ales will still be here, knocking out great, modern and relevant beers for that point in time 
in another 20, 30, 40 years' time. So we're trying to put down the solid foundations and build forward in a way that people can actually buy into that. And hopefully we will still be introducing new people to the final story in another 20 years' time who are um, discovering what we're all about and what we're also doing will still be fresh and relevant in another 20 years' time. It'll be different, I'm quite sure, but how it'll be different, how it will evolve, and hopefully it'll be true to our story. So we'll see see how that goes. Um and I think, think you know, so, so I think, think the beers, you know, we're, we are fundamentally, we are all about sort of a modern take on British British brewing tradition. And so hopefully, although I'm, I have no idea what beers will be brewing in 20 years' time, I hope they will always be building on and respecting how do we actually brew beers that really, truly reflect um, the British brewing tradition, but pick up on the best ideas from around the world and tie those into that tradition. Last, last thing I was going to say, you know, our, big, our other big, big push is that, you know, as we build out, you know, we're starting now to really put pen to paper on planning the um, the next phase of our expansion. You know, we've got to hit net zero. Um, you know, we've already, you know, we before we built the new brewery, we planted thousands of trees, um, just just literally all, all the ground above the hill. Is a brand new broadleaf plantation, which will be there for the next sort of um, 50, 100 years. Um you know, I've got consultants looking at sort of um, peat restoration on the hill above where we take the uh, the water supply from. But that's kind of like, you know, the hill's the hill, the brewery is the brewery. So I still want to see how do we actually take the actual brewing operations. It's not good enough to put the carbon dioxide into the air and take it out through the trees and the peatland restoration. We've actually got to work out how do we stop putting the CO2 into the air. So we're also, as part of that, you know, I really want to work out how do we do our bit and actually get the brewing operation within itself to net zero as well? You know, I think we, we all have to do that. So um, that's, you know, we don't have any choice. Let's get on. Let's do it. It, need, it needs doing. And other than the anniversary owl, which is now available, um, are there any other celebrations planned, small, large, within particular restrictions at the moment for, for for the 20th anniversary yeah i think given the a the sort of fairly disparate nature you know the fact we have sort of customers really people who enjoy our beer we're lucky to say up and down the country um we've not planned a big party you know obviously fine fest this year would have been part of that but as we haven't done fine fest we haven't planned a big party but, you know, so we're, we're continuing to sort of try and put out the things. Um, I think I'm allowed to say, uh, Ian hasn't told me that I'm not going to, I'm not allowed to, so I'm going to say anyway. But we have got a, um, a fresh hop version of the Earl coming out. So we're actually Ooh. getting some... Sorry, um, sorry, what? What, what? <laughs> yeah. what was that? <laughs> so we've got, we're getting some um, fresh um, citra. Um, and, okay. Given what I was just saying about environmental, this is not environmentally friendly. It is a one-off, but um, I think it's 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 interesting to tell the story. Uh, but you know, it's it's great when you're out in the hop yards and you're rubbing the hops; they smell great. When they come through the dryer, it's something different. So what we wanted to try doing was a fresh hop version of Yarl. So um, somewhere in an air freight system, or it's, no, I think I'm not sure if it's air freight. I think it's actually on a on a, um, a a reefer. We have a bunch of frozen citra, which is currently wending its way through the horrendous supply chains and everything at the moment um, to us. And 
all being well, and obviously if we're totally happy with with the quality of the beer, but there should be a fresh hop version of Yarl coming out. Um, it was meant to be about now, but I think now it's still on a boat in a port. Who knows? It's somewhere. <laughs> it's beside it not... a load of toys in Felix, though. That's that's the problem. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it has not yet managed to make its way into a warehouse that people can actually tell us when we're going to see it. So, um, but yeah, so some sometime in December we should have a um, a fresh hot version of Yarl coming out. And I think again, that's another way of sort of bookending and telling our telling our story. You know, we're twenty years old. Here's a different version of Yarl. Uh, I'll be really interested to see see see, see how it comes out. Uh, you know, fresh shop beers are an interesting challenge. You know, you've got to get the balance right with them. Um, but I, what I hope, you know, one of the things that makes us different, we haven't really talked about, is on the brewing side, is, you know, we have a full-size hop back, so we're very good at working with whole-leaf hops. That's, again, part of our essence of being about modern British beer was to stay with whole-leaf hops in the, in the brew house. So I think that's going to really help us to get the absolute best out of these hops. Um, so I'm really looking forward to seeing, seeing what that one's going to be like. That's going to be really interesting. And I hope to tell a good story. You and just about every thousand of our <laughs> listeners also <laughs> are all now clamouring for when they can get hold of fresh hot yarl. Uh, it's, um, it's going to be cask only, guys. So you've got to, got to find yourselves selves a good cask. Oh, for goodness pass. sake. Do you know how difficult that is to get down in Essex? We know a place. We know a place, Martin. <laughs> yes, that place had better sort it, Rich. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Jamie, yeah. it has been absolutely um, fascinating chatting with you this evening, um, learning about the history of finals uh, beyond just what you do with beer in, in, in terms of everything that you've done with farming, everything you're doing with the environment as well. It's it's an incredible story, and, and I think it's one that is... I'm, I'm going to put my neck out and say it's it's fairly unique to find ours. I don't think I can think of another British brewery that has a, a story quite like yours because when you, you've, you've got it on your labels that you are a farm brewery and that is exactly what you are. That's that's not just a, that that's not a style that you're trying to create and trying to add to your beers. You are a brewery that's based on a farm. That, that is a fact. You cannot argue with that. And you've you've constantly used the environment that's around you to, to, to grow and continue to have great success with everything you're doing. And, and, and long may that continue. Um, this, this barley wine is really good. And it really does sum up everything, um, I think, about what, what, what finals are about in terms of your, your approach to, to, to beer and just getting the greatest product out there. Thank you very much for having me on. And um, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure to be drink, drink, drinking with you. And yeah, I hope hope that the um, the barley wine you really enjoy because uh, I've been really proud of it. Thank you ever so much, Jamie, uh, for arranging these beers to come through to us. As Steve said, thank you ever so much for joining us on the show. Yeah, it's been brilliant. Cheers. Yeah, cheers. Thanks so much, guys. Cheers. Cheers.